So Luke 20, 9 through 18. Luke 20, verse 9. This is the word of the Lord. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, now as we turn our attention to your word uh, here in the Gospel of Luke, we admit to you our need for help, that your spirit would come and work in our minds and our hearts, Father, giving us eyes to see, giving us ears to hear. Lord, as we focus on your word now, we pray for your work to be done in us. We ask this in the name of Jesus and for his sake, amen. Well, these are some strong words from Jesus. Last week, we looked at uh, Jesus driving out the animals and the money changers from the temple courts. That was in Luke 19, 45 through 46. And I mentioned then just how uncomfortable that must have been you know, being with Jesus when he was doing that, to think what it would have been like to experience uh, such a moment laced with tension, to see Jesus raising his voice and, and causing such a commotion in a public place like the temple, especially during the week of Passover when many Jews would have been there. And now, however, the tension may have risen up to another level here in our passage. For here, Jesus tells a story which makes a startling accusation against the religious leaders of Israel. Confrontations are always uncomfortable. And they're especially uncomfortable when you are the one being confronted or accused. But they're also uncomfortable when, when you are uh, just you know, in the same room while someone is confronting someone else. And here in our text this morning, Luke reports on a confrontation between Jesus 
and the leaders in Jerusalem, and he sure made them feel uncomfortable. And we see that there in, in, in verse 16. He definitely got his point across to them with this story. Uh, but what Jesus is doing here is just simply following the example of Scripture with this confrontation. Uh, back in 2 Samuel chapter um, 12, we have another well-known confrontation between someone speaking for God and the man who was the leader in Jerusalem at the time. Uh, the prophet Nathan confronted the king of Israel, King David, and David's sin, uh, which is why Nathan was confronting him, his sin was that he had committed adultery with another man's wife. She had gotten pregnant, and then to cover up his sin, David had her husband killed by ordering him to be placed on the front lines of battle, so he would surely die in that battle. And then after he died, then, then he quickly married his wife, so uh, before she began to show that she was pregnant, hoping, of course, that no one would be the wiser as to what had really happened. But, but God knew. God saw. And so God sent the prophet Nathan to confront David regarding his sin. And Nathan didn't just walk right in, you know, and point the finger at David and accuse him of adultery and murder. Instead, Nathan told David a story. A story that, that showed David just what he had uh, done by using, in the story, a poor man and a rich man, with the rich man taking advantage of, of the poor man. And when David heard the story, it angered him. It got him mad. And he immediately saw that this rich man deserved to die. And that was when Nathan pointed the finger at David. That was when the confrontation happened. That was when Nathan said, you are the man. You are the man. And probably for the first time, David saw his sin and saw that he was the one who deserved to be condemned. He was the one that deserved to die for his sin. And this humbled David. And David repented. And like Nathan, Jesus used a story here to show the Jewish leaders their sin. In this confrontation, Jesus used this story to show them how awful their sin really was and how deserving they were of condemnation. But will this have the same effect? Will this have the same result? For unlike Nathan's story, Jesus' story goes one step further it not only shows the people their sin and rebellion, but it also reveals something amazing about God. So as we think about this passage this morning, um, our, our main theme that we see in this passage is that our condemnation is well-deserved. And God's sacrificial offer of his son is unbelievably gracious. Our condemnation is well-deserved for our sin, and God's sacrificial offer of his son is unbelievably gracious. So in a way, what Jesus is doing here is holding up a mirror uh, to the Jewish leaders in this parable. He is showing them who they really were. 
And in a way, he's doing that, that, that same thing for us as we look at this passage. For we share a lot in common with them. So there are, are three main thing, uh, things here that Jesus is showing us through this parable and his main point at the end of the parable. He first shows us our wicked, rebellious nature. He also shows us God's merciful patience towards sinners like us. And finally, Jesus warns us that rejecting him is both foolish and deadly. So first, Jesus shows us our wicked, rebellious nature here in this passage. Uh, When Jesus begins his story by mentioning that there was a man who planted a vineyard, uh, those who were listening to him would have immediately known that he was referring to the people of Israel as the vineyard. In the Old Old, uh, Testament prophets, God often used this image of a vineyard to describe his people. We see that pretty clearly in Jeremiah uh, 2, verse 12. We see that in uh, Ezekiel chapter 19. We see that in Hosea 10, verse 1. And we see that also in Psalm 80. Uh, But it's probably most clearly seen in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, where in verse 7, God says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So it doesn't get much clearer than that. In fact, to symbolize that Israel was the Lord's vineyard or the fruit-bearing vine, there was a huge golden grapevine with grape clusters uh, that, that, that hung at the entrance to the temple sanctuary during the time when Jesus was in Jerusalem. Uh, they would have known right away then what Jesus was referring to when he mentions the vineyard here because they were in the temple. They had passed through those doors listening to Jesus teach. So then if if the vineyard is God's people, Israel, then the tenants uh, or those who were left to care for the vineyard would most definitely represent Israel's leaders. The chief priests, the elders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the, the principal men, as Luke refers to them in verse 47 of chapter 19, they were the ones the people looked up to for direction, for leadership, for teaching. They represented God to the people. They were their instructors. They were the ones who were caring for the people. And they were the very ones who Jesus confronted and challenged and condemned as he did here. So the parable tells a summary of the history of Israel. It begins with God. God founded the nation of Israel. God caused Abraham and Sarah to have a son when Sarah was well beyond the age to conceive a child. Then God caused Rebekah to be able to bear twins when for 20 years of marriage to Isaac, she was unable to bear children. And then God chose Jacob the, the second born of those twins over the firstborn Esau to be the father of the 12 tribes, which of course made up then the nation of Israel. He, God gave Jacob the name Israel, and so then his children became Israel, and God then saved his people Israel through the great famine that Joseph had predicted. And then God redeemed this nation out of slavery in Egypt. He gave them the law and the covenant promises. He gave them the land to live in, and he dwelt among them. They were his people. He was their God. 
but the people strayed. Throughout the history of the people of God in the promised land, they consistently went after the gods of the pagan nations around them, or they syncretized the worship of God along with the worship of, of other territorial uh, gods around them. They, they, they lived for themselves rather than for the honor and glory of their Redeemer. So what did God do? How did God respond? Well, he sent them prophets. He sent them his word through these messengers to alert them of their sin, to warn them of God's judgment if they would continue in their sin, to call them to repentance. But how did the leaders of Israel respond to those prophets? Well, some, some of the faithful leaders, like David, listened to them and repented, but most refused to listen to them and treated the prophets shamefully. In the book of Nehemiah, which would have been after the exile in Babylon for the people of Judah when they had returned then to Jerusalem and had re rebuilt the walls and would soon rebuild the temple, their leaders led them in that time. He led the, they, they led the people in a time of re repentance for they, of course, had realized that their exile and the fall of Jerusalem was the judgment of God brought on them for their idolatry. And in, 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 in their prayer of repentance in Nehemiah verse, uh, ch uh, chapter 9, uh, verse 26, we hear the people confess this, referring to their leaders prior to the exile. They say then, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. So in this parable that Jesus teaches, the owner of the vineyard sends his servants to receive some of the fruit of the vineyard. This would have been a way for the tenants to, to basically pay, pay their rent to the landowner. But they refuse to pay, and they end up treating the servants shamefully. They rebel against the Lord of the vineyard, which is what the owner is called literally there in verse 13. He's the Lord of the vineyard. Uh, they, they don't own the place. They are only there because the owner gave them the privilege of living there, of caring for his vineyard. And instead of honoring their Lord, instead of returning to their Lord what was rightfully his, they rebel against him. Going so far as killing the son of the owner, because they believed they would then have a rightful claim on the vineyard since there'd be no other heir to take possession of it. So Jesus was directing the parable at the rebellious, self-righteous leaders of Israel who were about to condemn him and have him crucified. What we see in the sin and rebellion of these leaders what we also see in our hearts. We also see in our lives. For we also re rebel against God's ownership of our lives. We also rebel against God's calling us to bear fruit in our obedience to his word. 
we also rebel against God and we, we cast his law behind our backs, refusing to listen to his word when he commands us to repent of our sin or, or to stop doing the sinful acts that we really enjoy doing. We say things like, I don't care what God's word says. It's my life. I'm going to live my life how I want to live my life. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to treat others the way that I think they deserve to be treated. I'm going to seek my kingdom first. Who cares? Who cares? God says. And friends, we need to realize, as we hear this word, God has given you life. He's given you life. He created you. He owns it all. He is the Lord. He gave you all kinds of gifts, resources. He gave you your family, your friends, your relationships. He gave you your, your minds, your strength, your personality, your health. He gave you your home. He gave you whatever leadership positions you have. He owns it all. And he entrusted them into your care. You were given all those things in order to serve the Lord, to bear fruit for him. But sin tempts us to live our own lives as if, as if we are the owners of all things. Sin leads us to rebel against anyone who would tell us otherwise. We end up living as if we make up the rules in God's vineyard, using all the resources God's given us in order to serve ourselves. Sin leads us to live our lives as if we are the owner of our lives and all of our resources, and God is the tenant. God is the one who works for us. Sin is acting as if you are the owner when you are really only the tenant. So we must repent. We must acknowledge. God's, God's the owner. God owns it all. Are you okay with that truth? Are you okay with the fact that God is the owner of you, of your life, of all you have? Does your life reflect that reality? That you have been called to serve him and bear fruit for him? That you answer to him? Now, Jesus is here showing us that, that far too often we've got it all turned around the wrong way. But thankfully, thankfully, that's not all Jesus shows us here. For the second thing that Jesus shows us is that God's, he shows us God's merciful patience towards sinners. Oftentimes when we are watching movies and uh, we see one of the characters in the movie making a very foolish decision, it, it provokes a reaction within us that sometimes even escapes out of our mouths. We say, don't do it. Don't go in there. And it's always so clear and obvious to us when someone in the story 
is doing something that we think is going to get them in trouble. And we kind of get the same sense as we read the story about the owner of the vineyard. We think after all, uh, after, after how the tenants were treated in this story, you know, how, how the tenants treated the first servant, well then he definitely shouldn't be sending another one. But then he does. And then after they beat the second servant, treat him shamefully, we definitely think he should, he should come up with maybe a different plan here uh, of how to deal with these tenants. Definitely not send another servant, but guess what? He sends another one, a third servant, to collect from the tenants. And he gets treated in much the same way. And then when we hear what he's planning to do next, that he's going to send his son, his only son, his beloved son. Well, how do we respond? No! Don't do it! Don't send your son! But he does. And they throw the son out of the vineyard and they kill him, just as we expected would happen. So was the owner of the vineyard foolish in doing this? Or was he something else? What was Jesus showing us here? Well, again, these servants represent the prophets whom God sent to his people with his word, his word of warning, his word of instruction, his word calling the people to repent and return to faithful devotion to their Redeemer. He sent each prophet to declare to the people his love and his mercy, pointing them to the way of salvation, and yet the people refused to listen. And, and, they, and they treated many of the prophets shamefully, especially the closer they came to God's judgment falling on them. And that was where uh, they were at, once again here with Jesus. God's beloved son was there speaking God's words of warning to them, they were about to treat him worse than any of the prophets were treated before him. And they were just one generation away from God's judgment falling on Jerusalem when the Romans would come and destroy the city in A.D. 70. So in telling this, this, this parable, Jesus was forewarning the people that they ought not to be surprised by what was about to happen to him. He's letting them know what they what the leaders were about to do to him. He is the son sent to the caretakers of God's vineyard and they were about to kill him because they wanted the ownership of the vineyard for themselves. This was the ultimate rebellion. This was, this was Adam and Eve grasping fruit because they believed they could be like God, that they could take his place in the world that they could do it themselves. But why would God continually send prophets and messengers to speak his word to them, and when they would refuse to listen to them, why in the world would God send his only son to them, knowing full well that they would kill him by nailing him to a cross? Why would God do that? Well, we are told why, uh, at the very end of the book of Second Chronicles, um, again, just a, a book uh, which tells a story of the history of God's people uh, during the, the age of the kings, uh, just before they were defeated by Babylon and, and hauled off into exile. At the end of Second Chronicles, 
verses 15 and 16, we, we read this. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Why did God keep sending the prophets? Why did God keep sending the messengers with his word? He kept sending them because he loved them. He had compassion on his people. God is patient. Far more patient than we can possibly imagine anyone being. God is merciful. Far more merciful than you or I have ever been. God is unbelievably gracious. And so he sent his word to them, calling them back, confronting them about their sin, their idolatry, which would lead them to destruction, which was leading them along the road to death. And he called them back. He offered them his grace if they would turn and repent. And then as Jesus shared here in verse 13, he shares, the father said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. And this, of course, reminds us of, of other more familiar verses to us, like John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But he had to know what they would do to his son, right? He had to know. Of course he knew. But he sends him anyway. For that's the way in which God was going to be able to save his people. So friends, Jesus wants you both to see your own sinful rebellion revealed here by the story of, of the tenant farmers refusing to give up what was rightfully God's that is our sin and our rebellion against God, enjoying all these blessings that he has given us out of his grace, but refusing to honor him, refusing to glorify him with what he's given us, instead keeping it all for ourselves. But along with that, Jesus also wants to, us to see God's glorious love and compassion revealed here as well. His merciful patience in sending you messengers sending you those who shared God's word with you. That Sunday school teacher or that grandparent who, who gave you a Bible, that Christian friend who encouraged you to go to church with them, that mother and father who, who read the Bible to you and encouraged you to repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ alone and ultimately Ultimately, God showed his compassion and his grace by, by sending his son, sending the Lord Jesus. He came into the world to take the blame for your sin, to take the blame for your rebellion against God, and to be condemned on the cross for your sin as your substitute. And 1 John 4, 9 through 10 tells us this, in this 
the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So my friend, have you turned away from your sins and your trust in in your own goodness and grasped hold of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith to save you, to redeem you, to transform your heart and your life? Have you done this? Have you come to Christ? Have you seen the grace that God is offering you? Come to him today. Confess your need for his righteousness and follow him. Follow what he says for the rest of your days. The last thing we see Jesus doing, Jesus warns us that rejecting him is both foolish and deadly. So now the question in in the story is from verse 15. Look at verse 15. Jesus says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He had sent his servants, which they had beat up and sent away. He had sent them his only son, whom they had thrown out of the vineyard and killed. So what then will the owner do? What will he do to them? Well, verse 16 tells us, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. So here Jesus again is forewarning the leaders and the crowd of the judgment that was going to fall on Jerusalem in AD 70 when the Romans would attack and drive them out of the city and kill many of them. And he's also pointing forward to the judgment that will fall on the world if they reject the Savior whom he sent. Jesus also says he will give the vineyard to others, which which points to the vineyard, the people of God belonging to to God's people who will only be made up of those who trust and follow Jesus. The true Israel will be made up of people from all kinds of different nations, all who trust and follow Jesus as Lord, not just those who are physical descendants of Jacob. When the people heard this, What was their response? Well, they were shocked. Surely not, they said. And that's when Jesus looked directly at them and quoted from Psalm 118, saying, he was the cornerstone that the builders rejected, which will all fall on them and crush crush them. So Jesus, in in, in saying this, he's using a, a play on words, a play on words that we really can't see, Um, in the English language. He's speaking to them, of course, in Aramaic. uh, And in both Aramaic and in Hebrew, the word for son is ben, ben. And the word for stone is eben, ben and eben. The two words sound a lot alike. And so Jesus was saying here, the son and the stone, the ben and the eben are the same. He is the son, and he is the stone. He is the son that was rejected. He is the stone that was rejected, the Ben and the Eben. The leaders of Israel were then both the tenants 
that rejected the owner's son, and they're also the builders who rejected the most important stone. When they, when they rejected Jesus, they were missing out on the thing that they needed the most. They were like builders entrusted with constructing a building, but who had foolishly rejected the one stone that was crucial to holding the whole structure together. That was Jesus. That was the Lord and Savior. He is the cornerstone on which the whole structure of your life and of your right standing with God depends upon. Rejecting him then is both foolish and deadly. So how do you make sure you are building your life on Christ? How do you make sure that you are building your life on that cornerstone, on Christ the Lord? Well, one first question to ask would be, how do you respond to his word? How do you respond to, to Christ's word? How important is his word in your life? Are you submitting yourself under his word? Are you hearing his word? Are you reading his word? Are you thinking about what his word means, how it applies to your life, what it says about your life and your obedience? Are you obeying what he says? Secondly, have you repented of all of your attempts at making yourself right with God? By doing the right things, by, by, by trying to live the, the right way or just assuming that because you belong to a certain family or you belong to a certain church you've been going to all, all, all your lives that, that God will surely accept you, that you surely belong to him because you, you just are, you're just a part of the right group, the right family. Doing what you believe is all the right things. If, if that's where you are, then, then Christ is not the cornerstone on which you're building your life. You are. You are. And sooner or later, your life will come crumbling down because you aren't able to handle the weight of the righteousness that God requires. And so repent. Repent. Turn away from that. And seek the righteousness of Christ. Ask him to transform your whole way of living and thinking so that you will live by faith in him. That you will have the peace of God ruling in your heart because your hope is now firmly in the Savior that God has sent. Uh, maybe confess to the Lord in the words of, of Charles Wesley from a great old hymn. He said, Jesus, the sinner's friend, to thee, lost and undone, for aid I flee. Weary of earth, myself, and sin, open thine arms and take me in. Pity and save my ruined soul, tis thou alone can make me whole. Dark till in me thine image shine, and lost I am, till thou art mine. At last I own it cannot be that I should fit myself for thee. Here then to thee I all resign. Thine is the work and only thine.
So flee to Jesus. Make sure he is the cornerstone that you are building your life upon. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we have meditated on your word here in Luke 20, we pray that you would continue that work that you've been doing in our hearts as we've been hearing your word. Lord, that we would not look to anything in ourselves to make us right with you, but we would acknowledge that it, all, it is all you. Our salvation, our righteousness, our blessedness is all you. We need you to do the work for us. So please, Lord, transform our hearts. Make us dependent upon you and your grace. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.